I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. My guest today is one of the foremost experts on American campaign finance, essentially how our politics runs. Anna Masoglia is a researcher, editor, and writer based at the Center for Responsive Politics, where she studies foreign influence, digital and political ads, and is responsible for Open Secrets, Dark Money Data, and Foreign Lobby Watch. She's held additional roles with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law Voting Rights Project, the U.S. House of Representatives, and the Sunlight Foundation. Anna, pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And you were noting to me just off camera a second ago, the Federal Election Commission is in effect handicapped by virtue of not having members to vote. Um, So we might start there. What is going on with the Federal Election Commission? Well, uh, the Federal Election Commission, which is tasked with campaign finance oversight across the board for federal campaigns and other political groups, has not had a quorum, so has not had enough commissioners to vote on any type of enforcement action uh, for months now. This means that any time there is a violation or an infraction um, of campaign finance law, there is very little that the FEC can do about that. So we have violations across the board potentially and nothing happening. Um, We have seen a lot of progress in some areas since the 2016 election, such as with digital ad disclosure, that those are now becoming available online. We've seen a lot of people working to address these issues, but we've also seen new issues cropping up, such as the FEC's lack of a quorum. Right. So that means in just tangible terms for the public that the body whose responsibility, the sole body whose responsibility it is to enforce the law as it relates to campaign finance is AWOL, is, is not functioning. That's correct. Uh, the FEC is charged with the civil enforcement. Uh, the Department of Justice also has, to some extent, some purview over campaign finance uh, infractions once they reach a criminal level. But without the FEC flagging these infractions, there's very little that's happening um, outside of extremely egregious examples that have risen to that level. Can you give us a distinction Can you make the distinction between criminal and civil so that we can understand what is considered uh, penalties that the FEC would issue versus, you know, criminal review? And let's just take an example of how Russian entities were funneling money through the NRA during the 2016 contest. Well, we didn't really see much happen in terms of consequences of that at all. Um, With the criminal side, you're generally seeing more of these high-profile cases with foreign influence infractions. Uh, Paul Manafort is one name that comes to mind. Whereas on the FEC civil enforcement side, you're seeing more fees, you're seeing fines, you're seeing uh, groups flagged where they have to amend their filings so that the public disclosure um, is corrected and that people have that information. But what actually are the violations that would be deemed civil versus uh, criminal? In other words, at what point does it become criminal. What can you get away with in the absence of an FEC working for the American people? Well, gosh, in some cases you are seeing people not filing at all. You're seeing foreign money going in through various groups. You're seeing lack of donor disclosure across the board. One of the issues, though, is in many cases these are not uh, necessarily violations of the law or even 
civil infractions in some cases since the law is very vague in many um, aspects of it. For example, dark money, money from undisclosed sources. Uh, you are seeing um, words like political purposes not having uh, a definite meaning under the FEC's rules and people exploiting loopholes like that uh, to not disclose their donors, not disclose their sources of funding, and in many cases not disclose their financial information at all. Right. And the Supreme Court's decision really enabled the floodgates to open almost as widely as they possibly could in terms of granting any entity the right of a human being to donate and maybe to donate in an unlimited fashion. Uh, so we're in this, in this climate that has been described as the Wild West of campaign finance and reform. Uh, specifically, what have you seen so far uh, with respect to the major candidates in 2020 and how they're raising money uh, and, and whether or not there is a check to ensure that foreign influence is not uh, absorbed in um, the way that they're raising money, whether it is the President of the United States, um, Donald Trump, whether it is uh, Bernie Sanders uh, or any of the other candidates who are raising money right now. Well, it's important to uh, distinguish between what money the candidates are raising, which in many cases they are, of course, are across the board are required to disclose their donors, but is from individuals, versus outside group spending, where you have groups like super PACs, 501c4s, and other political groups that can take, un in many cases, unlimited money from sources including businesses, uh, from undisclosed sources, and 501c4s, which is a type of nonprofit often associated with dark money that can even take unlimited sums from foreign, um, from foreign nationals even, which are normally prohibited from being involved in U.S. elections, but can also spend as long as they're not using that funding. But there's very little, um, there's very little accountability mechanisms to ensure that that's actually what's happening behind the scenes. Case in point supposedly the law is that these entities you describe cannot coordinate with campaigns but they are often their underlying function or mission is synonymous with that of a presidential campaign so all these entities that are able to raise money in a way that's untraced or at least that's unaccounted for are then funneling their money towards the causes of the presidential campaigns and that's the system we have right now that's correct what is the center doing um, in, in a proactive way uh, to try to flag whenever possible instances of violations and specifically in the, in the arena that is unaccounted for where that dark money resides, the organizations you just mentioned, uh, how do you actually go about the process of trying to find the origin of those organizations and where the money is coming from? Oftentimes, finding the origin of dark money is a difficult and, in many cases, impossible task. Um, one of the issues with that is there's not a central repository of data or information on dark money groups. With political groups and campaigns that explicitly spend on politics, you at least do have some level of disclosure to the Federal Election Commission. With dark money groups, in many cases, they are organized where they claim they are not political groups. They for example, 501c4 nonprofits say they support social welfare, um, but they can still spend unlimited sums in politics so long as politicking isn't their primary purpose. But in many cases, they will run ads where they almost say vote for, vote against, but they usually paint a candidate in a favorable or disfavorable light. And because they avoid those words, they can claim those ads are educational in many cases. And not actually end up disclosing much, if anything, to the Federal Election Commission. 
we at the Center for Responsive Politics are trying to piece together that data, taking the traditional campaign finance data from the FEC, political ad data reported to the Federal Communications Commission, as well as on digital platforms, and other types of public records, such as incorporation records, lobbying records, uh, Foreign Agents Registration Act filings, um, and a variety of other different sources. But in many cases, you have a lot of different pieces of the puzzle, and you never find the full, complete picture. You don't ever really know everyone who is bankrolling those groups, if any, in some cases. We know that the digital economy and specifically online political content hasn't been regulated to provide transparency to the American people. There are countless shows on this air. We've talked about the one candidate for higher office, presidential office this cycle, who has co-sponsored with Mark Warner and the late John McCain, the Honest Ads Act. It's one signature piece of proposed uh, legislation um, that hasn't gotten a vote in the Senate that would begin to provide accountability so that all the trail of ads that is video or memes via tweet or Instagram, that they require the same legible understanding of who's financing it as a 30-second or 60-second TV spot. Now, to my knowledge, Klobuchar's legislation has gone nowhere. Um, are, are there preparations underway uh, to think about in a new legislative climate, if the American people do demand greater transparency, what would be the immediate steps so that the finance system is more um, transparent so that ads online specifically are more transparent? Um, addressing online ads and that have political focuses at the federal level is really important because right now we have a very ad hoc system where certain digital platforms have decided to disclose some information about the digital ads that are running in a political context. We've seen Facebook, Google, Snapchat, Twitter to some extent um, at least disclose uh, the spending on certain ads and incorporate disclaimers, but there really isn't a standardized system across the board. Many other platforms are continuing to run political ads or politically charged ads and have no disclosure or disclaimer system at all. So having some level of addressing that at a federal level where you have the disclosure side that all the spending information is out there for the public to be able to access it, but also having disclaimers on those ads are really important so that people know who is paying for the messaging. It presents a lot of challenges with the internet especially because you don't have traditional political ads in the same way you would on TV and radio, as you mentioned. You have memes, you have videos, you have um, a lot of colorful ads that don't necessarily use the vote for, vote against language that would normally trigger the Federal Election Commission's oversight. So there's a lot of loopholes there. Closing that is really important. Honest Ads is one of those proposals that um, would address a lot of those issues. And the fact of the matter is Facebook pays Devin Nunes. They pay the Republican Party and Democrats, too, to not put push forward regulation that would dampen their profits. I mean, that explains in a nutshell why Mitch McConnell refuses to put up for debate what would pass the House instantly. I mean, you're seeing heavy lobbying spending by a lot of the tech companies who are the biggest beneficiaries of political ad spending. And you're seeing... Um, I just want the public to understand and for you to explain to them why we don't have an Honest Ads Act right now, right? <laughs> it's a great question. Yeah. 
there's a lot of issues out there and people really don't know who's behind so many of these ads and so much other messaging online. And not just Facebook, Alphabet, Google, they all have their lobbyists and they all have paid the Republicans, many of them, to keep the status quo, uh, which means information insecurity, a lack of integrity in the accountability of elections, which is, which is getting to our present conundrum of this 2020 race. So without tapping into the caucus results or primary results to, to hear from you, I just, as someone who's monitored this so closely uh, and, and is really so knowledgeable about electoral habits and, and the possibility of reform, uh, we have some scenarios in the Democratic Party right now. You have a candidate like Pete Buttigieg, who's raised money like, much like Barack Obama, uh, a lot of millionaires, some small donor support. You have someone like Bernie Sanders, who's raised money through largely small contributions um, in, in an unprecedented fashion, too. And then you have someone like Mike Bloomberg, who's putting his own net worth forward and self-funding a campaign. I wanted just to hear your response to that question of these models of self-funding billionaires or um, individual donors. Well, money in politics and the issue of money in politics has played a unique role in the Democratic primaries. We've seen much more of a focus on it and as an issue than in prior years where candidates are doing things like rejecting corporate money, rejecting lobbyist money, rejecting foreign agent money. And so it's been really interesting to see them address that. Uh, they have taken very different fundraising models, ranging from that self-financing to smaller donor, donation, donor donations. and. One of the issues that we think is so important is actually getting the information about the donors and who's funding those campaigns out there, getting the financial information. One of the things that a lot of the candidates who had those smaller donors have done is actually disclose the names of those voluntarily, which has been um, a really interesting thing to go through from a data standpoint, but also gets the information out there um, about who these, who these individuals are, gives a better perspective of who's supporting the candidates. In many cases, the donors can be a reflection of who's actually going to get out and support the candidates. So it's been nice to at least get a better gauge of that this year now that we have the information out there. And has there been an audit to basically ensure that for the small donors, in the case of Senator Sanders, that these are all real people? I mean, how, how much of the FEC's absence here uh, could reflect a lack of scrutiny on the individual donors. Um, how confident can we be that when Sanders makes this point, he is being truthful that these are all individual small donors? Well, at least with the Federal Election Commission and many federal filings, you are submitting the information under the penalty of perjury in most cases. So even if you're doing so voluntarily to some extent, you are ensuring that it is correct, um, as opposed to the ad hoc disclosures such as online ads. Which um, doesn't mean that a scheme could, you know, a scheme that, that does not eliminate the possibility that a scheme could be concocted to that's throw that into, you know. Um, and at least the FEC is able to flag infractions, so they are still processing data, processing filings as they get those in. In some cases, we've seen the FEC send letters that people have uh, received too much money um, over the contribution limits, that type of thing. The real issue comes in when the FEC wants to enforce the law and wants to actually fine uh, campaigns or outside groups, because without a quorum, 
that's where the road stops for them. And are they referring penal greater penalties, criminal penalties to the Justice Department? Is that the way it's supposed to work ideally as the people on the front line seeing what's happening and if there may be um, impropriety or illegal behavior? Well, we don't really see what happens behind the scenes and what those interactions look like between the FEC and the Justice Department. There was a recent uh, Government Accountability Office report that looked at how the FEC and the Justice Department work together, and it was not promising. Uh, the, the end suggestion of the report was that they should talk to each other effectively and said that there was a stark lack of communication, that there was very little coordination, that uh, access to information was not streamlined, and in many cases you had information at the FEC that never made it to the Justice Department or vice versa. Um, this sounds like an electoral 9-11 <laughs> with the CIA and FBI, the lack of communication. It's um, an important issue to address, and, but one of the um, more disconcerting parts of that conclusion was that even if they do have more communication, so many of the issues still can't be addressed without a quorum at the FEC, that right. um, there's so little that they can do about certain violations that even if they're flagged on one side or the other, um, there's a lot that still falls, into, falls through the cracks. Or without robust legislative parameters for how this ought to operate, right? I mean, even if there was a quorum and they did vote, it doesn't mean that the post-Citizens United climate would yield any kind of greater accountability or scrutiny. Um, but let me ask you again, going back to those three models, it, it, the model of the, of the millionaires and um, then the regular donors versus the self-funding billionaire, um, is, is there any insight you can offer into, you know, basically what might be better for responsive politics ultimately and for transparency and accountability? One of the concerns I've seen raised about uh, Bloomberg's self-financing is that there are still a lot of questions about the financial situation behind that. Even though you know you're getting the money from Mike Bloomberg and it's going out to those vendors, you don't really know what the financial situation is behind that. You don't know who he's rubbing elbows with behind the scenes. You don't know a lot of details of his finances uh, in, until you get his personal financial disclosure. And even then, that disclosure is very limited in many cases. But what about the effect on the democracy? I mean, your sense of how a candidate like Bloomberg, um, were he to, in effect, buy the nomination, how that would affect the long-term possibility of, you know, accountability. Um, you know, is it, Stacey Abrams has been on record saying, well, at least we know where the money is coming from. It's not Russian, it's not foreign. You're saying that may be not true because even if it's Mike Bloomberg, it could be offshore accounts, it could be handled in a way that's not patriotic. Um, but I just wanted to get your insight into that question of, of the outcome of who wins the Democratic nomination and ultimately who wins the next election. How will it affect the work that you do? Um, or how, how do you ideally hope it might affect the work that you do. I just hope that the information gets out there. Uh, with Bloomberg, you are seeing just such a flood of money. It's not necessarily the financing model, but the amount that has been really interesting to follow. You're seeing ads almost constantly on TV, online, um, and be with people seeing 
Mike Bloomberg ads everywhere in a way that they're not for other candidates. Um, I think it makes it hard to get the other candidates messaging out there and people might be less familiar with them than they are with Bloomberg. And it creates a bit of an uneven stage in many cases where other candidates might not be able to afford that relying on outside donors. Has your organization, the Center for Responsive Politics, taken a position on Citizens United on, or, you know, I know you study this, but have you tried to assess what would make our politics fairer from the point of view of, of transparency and, uh, and campaign finance? We've taken a position on some aspects of Citizens United. The ruling had a lot of different um, impacts and parts to it. Uh, the big thing that we have focused on is the transparency aspect where one of the impacts of opening up elections to corporate spending was that it opened up the door to groups like 501c4s and LLCs that are very opaque that can hide who is ultimately bankrolling these groups pouring money into elections and that's really what we are um, hoping to combat with by getting that information out there. Is there anything that folks at home watching can do to try to help in navigating the illicit side of the spending um, when folks saw the onslaught of expenditures on Facebook and the fact that all these troll farms were undertaking these hotbeds of, of uh, finance activity for American elections but not on American soil and not Americans who were funding them. Uh, is there anything that, that they can do to help in, in sort of the spirit of grassroots citizen journalism and reporting of things at the local or state or federal level that they find to be unkosher and want to help correct? Well, if you notice something wrong, always flagging it can be helpful. Um, we get a lot of great tips from people who see ads on TV from shady groups that they are curious who's behind them. And in many cases, we learn about new groups that way. So that can always be helpful. Um, also, just voting is one of the things that's really important, continuing to vote in the way that uh, promotes a quality democratic system um, and promotes clean politics in a way that's more transparent. Um, another thing is um, just getting that information out there, continuing to spread um, factual information rather than spreading disinformation. One of the things that's been so problematic with the digital media um, and potential foreign influence has been just an onslaught of misinformation and disinformation all over social media platforms. And in many cases, it's not just um, a foreign actor putting that information out there, they're relying on people continuing to spread it like a virus and uh, putting a stop to that. I think that that's something that people can really do. Is there any indication you can share with us that the Russian interference that we saw in 2016, actually during the primary campaign and general, has been revived in this Democratic primary contest so far? We have seen some uh, issues with uh, potential foreign spending. One of the things, not on the Democratic primary side, but with the National Rifle Association, which is one of the groups that came under scrutiny for accepting Russian money and ultimately admitted to that, uh, is that, they, that their most recent tax return covering 2018, uh, they disclosed spending on foreign fundraising for the first time. They had never done that before and now are fundraising in multiple different countries across the world while continuing to pour significant funds into U.S. elections. So we are seeing 
not necessarily that the foreign money is reaching U.S. elections because we don't know what happens in the middle behind the scenes, but we're seeing groups that are accepting foreign money then spending in U.S. elections. And they're, not, and they're certainly not the only one. We're seeing the Chamber of Commerce, as well as a variety of other groups actually admitting to taking foreign funds at varying points or uh, working with foreign companies um, and other foreign interests and then spending in elections. And in, even if it's not necessarily the same dollar bill that goes into them from a foreign source going out to an election, it's hard to say that doesn't at least have some impact on the decisions that that group is making. And certainly we have no more clarity on whether Facebook and Alphabet and all these companies are accepting foreign monies through these uh, 501c super PACs or uh, organizations that um, are pretending to be American entities but then in fact are not. Uh, but there's no more confidence really today that we can have that they're going to entrap them and actually play by the rules. I mean, we've seen so many different actors on social media at least get flagged by some of the companies, uh, but in, they continue to pop up with more. It's not like quashing one is going to quash all of them um, through 501c4s, but also through non-entities, through pages on Facebook where they can operate without any paper trail whatsoever. Yeah. We're seeing uh, groups that are ultimately tied to foreign sources, impersonating news agencies, um, as well as just American individuals. We're seeing uh, not just from Russia, but also from a lot of other countries. Thank you so much for your time today, Anna. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.